Welcome back to the podcast. This is a special episode. We are recording live at the IPOS annual meeting. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And this is Craig Lauer from Children's Hospital uh, at Vanderbilt. (laughs) This is our first introduction. First time doing that. Uh, Needless to say, we are excited to be here. Um, For those of you at home, we'll paint the picture a little bit. We are in the uh, main hall of the meeting. There are conference rooms off to all the sides where the sessions will be going on. We're sitting in a uh, podcast recording booth uh, where we look forward to welcoming the faculty members to talk about their presentations and try to bring you the key takeaways from their talks. The format for the show will be a little bit differently than usual. Instead of sort of one theme and then having a lightning round, we're just going to go interview to interview and try to bring you a few different flavors from the meeting. Yeah, I can't stress enough uh, how great it is to have this booth here. Um, this is fantastic. So I do want to really thank the Pozna group um, and specifically Sukhan Shah and the rest of the uh, of the IPOS meeting committee for uh, getting this done for us. Hopefully it's going to enable us to be pretty visible and to pull our moderators in a little bit easier into the booth. Carter, what's been your what's been your the thing you're looking forward to the most? Or I mean, just even after being in Orlando for a little bit as we prepare to record this meeting, what's what's been the most exciting and striking thing for you? Being at a meeting without masks and not having to worry about passing a COVID test to be able to fly home is pretty exciting. <laughs> that is exciting. Um, as I think everyone in the universe has heard, everyone who goes to IPOS always says over and over again that it is the best educational experience in orthopedics. I, I subscribe to that philosophy also, so um, I know it's going to be a lot of great presentations by faculty members. I'm particularly excited. There's a, a mid-career session um, that has a couple parts through the uh, week with yeah, new content yeah. that hasn't been at IPOS before, and we're going to try to bring you some of that material as we go. Great. Well, thanks to all our listeners uh, for your interest, and we hope that uh, hope that we can give you a little bit of the flavor of IPOS 2022, and um, hope that you guys consider uh, coming next year if you feel like you missed out um, and just from being able to listen at home this year. And our quote-unquote sponsor for this month is OrthoKids, the orthokids.org POSNA website that is full of great content for patients and parents and pediatricians. And we're going to tell you a little bit more about the website and uh, how it's being built and improved and how you can access it and get your uh, patients great information as seamlessly as possible. We'll we'll talk about that in a little while. And with that, uh, we're going to jump right into the content from the meeting. Here we go. All right, here we are. We are status post the first session of IPOS, and I've got to say it was pretty incredible. Uh, This is your host, Craig Lauer, and I'm joined with... This is Carter Clement. And uh, we are joined by our two moderators from that session. And it was, it was a team effort, but you're the two we could drag in here. So introduce yourselves. I'm John Scheneker. And I'm Nick Fletcher. All right. So great to have you guys here. Um, you know, it's been a couple of years since I've been to IPOS. Has it always been like that? That first session of trauma was fantastic. So, you know, about two years ago, I was sitting in my backyard and John called me. And I remember it was a beautiful day. And he said, hey, buddy. I got an idea, which is, as you know, because you're one of his partners, that can be good, and then sometimes it can require a lot of work. But we (laughs) talked through it, and, you know, I think that we struggle sometimes with, from an educational standpoint within this society and every society where you just have these sort of isolated buckets of talks where there's no continuity. And I think the thing that John really wanted to do was to use periosteum as a uniting theme across a series of talks to cover all of trauma in two hours, which is a big ask, I think, but, but sort of taking it down so that you're not just looking at it as trauma, but you're looking at it as trauma through the vise, or the, uh, the, the um, glasses of periosteum was a nice way to sort of make it palatable. That's great. Yeah, and you know, when we talked about it, it is one of those things where in pediatric orthopedics, because we take care of such rare diseases with heterogeneous presentations, we talk about this all the time, we really don't have evidence-based medicine. We would love to claim that we do, but we have evidence-based intuition, which makes any teaching conference really hard to not make dry. Because like ortho bullets or like OITE, just 
repeating, remembering, you know, percentages of something that somebody published, I don't think really helps you out much in the emergency room. Right. And when Nick and I were talking about it, what we love about IPOS is, is that we believe that the reason it's important to come here in person is so that you get the experience of hearing from the experts that this is evidence-based intuition. And for us to be able to teach that intuition, and in the process of designing the app, the purpose of it was twofold. One was is to make it so that everybody has to commit to an answer, because that's the way we learn. And we wanted it to be repetitive, so they heard a didactic session, but then were forced to answer that question in multiple different ways so that they developed that intuition. But the flip side of that, that ended up, I think, being probably the best part, was being in a room. We had over 350 people logged in, ranging in all expertise, and we put survey questions, meaning questions that we really don't know the answer to, and watching the responses and seeing how they've changed over years, but it gives every participant at least the confidence that we don't know exactly what we're doing, but at least seeing the spread of what experts are thinking gives them that confidence that they can make different decisions and that it's not wrong. Because we often get into this thing where we have a divergence of our opinion of how something would be treated. I mean, you and I experience this all the time in pre- and post-op conference. It's hysterical. And I've told Nick this many times as well as Chris Sutz. It's the reason why I love you there. Yeah. If if you don't speak up in that conference, I think you don't like me anymore. Right. Because you don't want to be in an echo me. chamber. Right. And the thing is, is that ha- having the opportunity to really see the breakdown of thought in that room, to be able to have the confidence to know it's okay to have a different opinion. And to see what, in the room, the percentages that lie out, it, it makes it so that when you go to one of these things and you have somebody who's totally biased and gets up and says, my clinical intuition is this and this is what you should do, but instead being able to not allow any one of our voices to override that conference, it was impossible. Right. We'd give our opinion, but then when we put the survey questions out, we show there's a lot of people who might disagree with what we just said, and that's okay. Yeah, I think it was uh, that aspect that was very instrumental in showing a balance in the variety of opinions and ways to attack these problems. Let's get into the specific problems a little bit because I want I want the audience at home to be able to take away some knowledge and building off this uniting theme of periosteum. Let's if people who haven't seen this talk or or John maybe heard your diatribe on periosteum. <laughs> Let's get a sense of maybe how in, let's say, supraconal humerus fractures, understanding the periosteum helps you with, let's say, uh, concomitant injury and understanding that and managing that and uh, dealing with reduction and fixation techniques. Nick, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's funny because when we started it, and obviously, you know, we don't, we've been friends where we don't practice together. I had I hadn't really thought through it from a soft tissue standpoint, and I and using the periosteum as a reduction tool, looking at the bruise pattern, telling which should tell you a where the injury is going to be, and then where the periosteum is torn and where the hematoma is, was actually relatively eye-opening for me. Whatever that was, ten ten years into practice, because you sort of know it, but you didn't realize that that, that you understood it, and so putting that together in a way that you can use the periosteum as a reduction tool um, and, and understand what you need to replace, which was a uniting theme, right, again, across distal radius, across supracondylar, um, you know, in lateral condyle, which is one of my sections, all the periosteum is torn. So realizing that it's off there, and so you need to replace it uh, using different techniques because you can't, you can't leverage the periosteum into, to help you reduce it. That was one of the things that I think uh, was, was so unique about this, and one of the, one of the things we try to, to stick with throughout the talks. So, yeah. so John, let's say a, a type 3B, would you just talk about that fracture a- pattern? I know Dr. Arcader gave the talk, but it looked like your slides. <laughs> <laughs> I well, recognize those slides. So, so one thing I'll do is just go back on that part of it is, is that the other thing about this that I encourage everybody to do whenever they get, never turn down the opportunity to give a talk. Um, even if they assigned you something really weird, like, for example, I'm going to be doing gymnast wrist in about two hours, and I don't take care of gymnast wrist. But I realize after reading the literature is, is that there are some things I can contribute to it that I think that can help out. But in getting a big group together like we did on this, we learned so much. The presentation was the tip of the iceberg in terms of, A, what we put into it, but B, what we got out of it. 
And that's where Nick and I've had so many conversations, like the 3B that you're talking about. If you just work through the four questions, and this is what we teach our residents, is, is that if you, in your assessment, list out four things, where's the periosteum torn? What could be hurt because it was torn there? Where's it intact and how can I use that to reduce it? And then how do I replace the periosteum to stabilize that fracture? A 3B is really easy when you go through that because, as Nick was just talking about, one of the signs of it is, is that the injury pattern will show up in terms of a bruise, the soft tissue injuries where the periosteum is torn. So in that posterior lateral of the 3B, it's going to be anterior medial, and then what could be hurt because of that is pretty obvious if you know your anatomy, and so you really your radar really goes up of worrying about the brachial artery and the median nerve. And then knowing that opposite of that, the posterior lateral uh, periosteum's intact, you can use that in the operating room to get your reduction. And then when you think of your pin configuration, you have to think of that that anterior medial aspect of the humerus is stripped, and your pin configuration needs to replace that. And that's where Nick and I really had fun with this, and we continue. We just added uh, radial neck and montasia on Monday. Yep. Yeah. And so much of that came from our conversations about, like, all right, well, if we're going to be teaching these principles, we need to think through it. And montasia in particular of thinking about where it's torn and why, woo, that is hard. Yep. And uh, it has been delightful. And I think that for our residents, it really helps out doing that. And uh, I will point out is, is that Eric Edmonds, we gave him the medial elbow. <laughs> and one reason why we did is, as most people know, the, he said periosteum doesn't matter over here. And we said, yeah, that's right, because with medial epicondyle and medial condyle fractures, it's usually torn circumferentially. So you're right. Yeah. And it, so, it was a good assignment for uh, a nihilist. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah. So that's where I think that this really is in a. In, and when Nick and I came up with the group that we worked on on developing the questions that everybody had to ask, where we're saying there actually is a true answer to this. What we meant by a true answer is, is there's a true answer in thought. Is is that the if you answer the question is as to this bruising pattern associates with what nerve injury were the type of questions we put on there. That's a type of repetition you need in the ER to get to a point that you develop your clinical intuition as to whether or not if you get that consult at two in the morning and you're five behind, if they call and tell you I have an anterior medial bruise, well you don't want to put that one off. Yeah, and and I think the listeners at home uh, may not be aware of the details of the app. So I'll, I'll kind of, from a, from a user standpoint, we all downloaded this app prior to the session. And throughout the session, uh, the team of presenters would put up surveys, either questions asking about how we would treat a certain thing, where, as you said, there was no answer and we were just trying to get a sense of what the audience thinks. But then there were also quizzes. And so the quizzes, I think, were part of hitting on this adult learning uh, aspect yeah. of pre-test, post-test, reinforcing important concepts. Um, but then the cool thing was you guys made a contest out of it. Um, so I don't know if you want to elaborate on any of that, or at least we should give a shout-out to our contest winners so that people at home know how famous they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the the app, which is, I mean, is John's baby, and uh, I've set up there, well, I can put together a talk. John just creates apps and puts together talks. Uh, but so he and his brother uh, have been really sort of instrumental and Steph and the rest of the team in, in helping this work out, but it really does do a remarkable job at reinforcing what you said, sort of that adult learning, because it gives us a, the a modality to look look at equipoise, right? Look at clinical equipoise. It gives us the ability to have that test retest, and then it has ability to show your progress and to to you know put it up there. And so we looked at a number of different factors uh, in terms of quizzes, accuracy, and throughput, and whatnot. And it just it, it makes it more engaging. Um, we've all been in sessions where you're sitting up there and it's pretty dry, and even if you have a great speaker, you sort of lose focus over time, but having every 10 minutes a different quiz and then an interactive session, and you get to see your progress, and we had people divided into teams based on uh, orthopedic uh, leaders, uh, historical leaders like Al Crawford, and that was I think that was also un unique, so that people could have a sense of community, I think. Yeah. 
And can you guys tell the people at home any of the questions that stood out to you? Any answers that surprised you coming from the audience? Yeah. Things that seemed like they changed over time? So there were two in particular. Uh, one was related to Song for Elbows. So, you know, I, John and I have been coming here together for a decade and a half, and uh, I guarantee that five, uh, ten, maybe five years ago, if we had asked that, the answer would be open, reduce, and pin. And that pendulum had really sw- uh, shifted. So about four out of five people were saying that they were, uh, you know, planning on going to the operating room with a closed reduction for displaced lateral condyle uh, fracture. So I think that was one. That that one, the one that always uh, surprises me in terms of the diversity of the responses, but I think is one of the best ones to display to our nurse practitioners, PAs. Craig and I've experienced this so many times, and they'll love listening to this, hearing this, is that when we put the two-week-out fractures of forearms and wrists yeah. and said, what would you do with this, is, is that we experience with our NPs, they want to pull their hairs out because they'll come to me and ask what to do with it, and I'll tell them one thing, and then they'll go and see one of our other partners, and they'll tell them they're completely wrong and should do something else, and they just say, can't you guys just decide on this? Right. And what was wonderful in this one is the scene that the pie chart breakdown was almost perfectly split <laughs> in terms of what to do with those, and again, I think that that's one of the most important parts about coming to this conference is to gain confidence in your clinical intuition when there is not data to support what the right thing is to do. Those were my favorite questions, and then that's what Nick was getting into also is how we treat things. Um, It was very fun for us as uh, the Cortices group uh, studying trauma, for example. We just had a meeting that we were discussing what do we do with tibial tubercle fractures postoperatively, and one of our partners, Nate Limpert, has been really looking into this and trying to set up a study on it. And I'll be honest with you, we at the meeting couldn't come to a consensus as to how we treat them postoperatively, long leg cast, you know, hinge knee brace, et cetera. It was unbelievable, Mm -hmm. that response. I mean, it was like 70, 80% of people went into a hinged knee brace. Locked in extension. Which just, and that is a huge cross-section of pediatric orthopedic practice, not only in North America, but internationally. And it's so useful to have that information to know that this is where we're going. And it's, um, I think, can really in the long run help direct even future research on what we do. And I think that if we had asked that question again 10 years ago, totally different. It'd be so, long I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it would be great over time. Hopefully, we'll have the opportunity to continue to do this. You could repeat some of those questions over time change. and see how they change. Because yeah. I think that's sort of a, a fun thing. It's, I mean, it was really, really interesting. And just, you know, simple things. We didn't get to the toddler fracture one, but John yes. and I talked about it on the phone, but it was, you know, toddler fracture, long leg cast, short leg cast, boot, or ace wrap. And, I and oh, you know, those, those kind of things. It's it's great. It's yeah, This kind of stuff is, is a lot of fun. So you had the adult learning part where you had reinforcement of simple concepts. And we say simple because John and I took the uh, elbow test the other day, having written the questions, and we were like... <laughs> Okay. Wait, which one was right? You know, yeah. right. So even even though we wrote it, having that repetition, I think, is, is critical. And then having the the ability to have the surveys where you where you realize that your lack of certainty is on par with everybody else. It's yeah. shared. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think. Oh, go ahead. So I was going to say, maybe to wrap things up, let's branch into another part of the show we do sometimes called Stirring the Pot, where we get into the controversies and, <laughs> okay. and get your right answers on the yeah, things yeah, that don't yeah. have wrong, right answers. So let's it. go through some of that stuff. So what is the right answer in uh, the world of Nick Fletcher for a toddler's fracture? So toddler's fracture, for me, I, I, John and I talked about this the other day. If the kid comes in, the typical, like, he was sort of limping for five days. I tell the parents, listen, in like five more days, he's going to be totally fine. So you have two options. You can either put him into a walking boot or I can send you out with an ace wrap. And I would say that if the kid has been walking on it for five days and is a little bit gimpy and the parents, it's the second or third kid, they're like, great, we'll take the ace wrap off we go. First kid, you know, it's a little bit more discussion, but I have never used a cast and I've never had one displaced. Chin would be yeah, better. easy. I mean, when, when you see answers like this, it all comes down to the main thing we treat in pediatric orthopedics, and that's parental fear. And so, you know, the shared decision-making aspect of that is it makes me totally confident that my job is just to take care of the parental fear. That's <laughs> yeah. it. And yeah. I know it's going to be fine anyway. And so if it's, a, if, if, if it's a mom who's unbelievably nervous about the child taking a boot off, 
then yeah, we could offer a soft cast. They could take it off later. Mm-hmm. But it's so nice to be able to have that conversation and not feel like I need to sell anything. Is is all I do is walk in the room, assess the situation, and figure out what I think is going to make it so that that mom or that dad is going to worry the least. So that's uh, that's an exercise in reading people. Let's talk. Let's get into surgery now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe non-surgery, depending right. on. Right. Yeah. So the indications of medial epicondyles. We talked about the lack of indications for treating medial epicondyle fractures. Um, I want to know in the world of John Schinnaker and then in Nick Fletcher. When do you treat them? When do you not? What is your flavor of the my, week? My only absolute is, is obviously a medial epicondyle that's trapped in a joint that was dislocated. That's my only absolute. Um, otherwise, I, I, I'm a pretty big nihilist about it. I mean, if it's uh, you know the overhead throwing athlete, I'll have more of a conversation with the family than not. But looking at our own database is, is that we treat a lot of fracture dislocation medial epicondyles close reduced and we don't see at least in our a- anecdotal data a big difference in terms of those outcomes right so i'm a pretty big nihilist about them so you're typically not going to treat it unless some sort of social circumstance forces you or yes. it's the absolute indication absolute of indication of trapped I've, i haven't really seen open fractures but the entrapped yeah. dislocation okay and Nick? i would say literally the same thing going back to your point earlier which i think is perfect this is reading the parents reading the family so if little johnny did it falling off of jungle gym and is typically a you know an online gamer okay then you're gonna get early range of motion and a cast but if it's you know if it's a high level gymnast or if it's a family who thinks they've got a high level level gymnast then you know sometimes you can't talk them out of it and I think the flip side of the coin is uh, Eric uh, despite giving a talk that was totally not online with what we had asked him uh, to do stylistically was a beautiful talk it's a quick surgery I mean it's 15 20 minutes that screw typically uh, is pretty easy to put in the complications are low it does allow you to I think to get them moving a little bit quicker and so if the right thing for the family because I think they're probably equivalent, right thing for the kid, and, and you can argue about the risks of surgery. But it's a, I mean, these kids are typically healthy, so I think the, the added risk of surgery is negligible. But the, uh, the if the right thing for the family in their mind is surgery, then I think I'm reasonable. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, but again, if it's a low demand kid in particular, I have no problem doing it closed. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. All right, flip the uh, classroom here. How about you two? Yep. Oh, yep. goodness. I, I kind of like the idea that we don't know which way is right or wrong. And when I'm explaining this to families, I tell them, generally in orthopedics, if we don't have a good answer, it's either because it's usually, and in this case, it's because both of them generally work out pretty well. Yeah. So I almost tell them they can't make a wrong choice. And I usually do let them kind of drive that once I give them the limited facts that I think we have on them. Which is tough because then it's harder for them and they hem and they haw and they say, well, what would you do if it's your kid and that kind of thing? But I think you know almost when you go in the room based off of how they injured it, um, what it's going going to be like for them, what what you think that they're going to want to do. So I would say I fall fairly in line with, with you all on that. I'm rarely telling someone oh, you have to have this fixed unless it is a situation yeah. we talked about where it's entrapped. Yeah. Exact same. Happy to fix them in an overhead throwing athlete, but I'm not pushing it. I've had some where I sort of tried to push them towards it. They didn't want surgery. came back totally stable. Yeah. Um, so I've gotten much more lenient in my indications. Um, and then... The toddler's fractures, I have not successfully talked anyone out of immobilization yet, <laughs> uh, but well, I'm that's trying. that's thing, you don't have to talk them out yeah. of it. But, um, but yeah. yeah, so everyone seems to end up in at least a boot. Yeah. Um, I haven't gotten anyone in an ace wrap yet. Maybe I'll start offering like a Band-Aid or an ace wrap, so an ace wrap <laughs> yeah. seems like one step up, and then I'll get someone in an ace wrap. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's all about changing the yeah, reference frame. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, guys, it's been great catching up with you. I think we'll probably get to do this later in the week as well. Do you have any other uh, power quiz sessions going? Uh, we infection, do, I think. We, we do for infection. Yeah, but tumor and infection, which is uh, Friday afternoon. Okay. Well, I'm sure the listeners will want to hear more updates yeah. on that at that time. Cool. Great. Thanks, right. guys. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. A great session. Woo-woo. Well, uh, we are back between sessions. Uh, this is Carter Clement, and I've got Craig Lauer with me again, and we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Will McKenzie from Nemours, a good friend of the podcast who has just finished an excellent session on skeletal dysplasia. Dr. McKenzie, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Nice to be here, Carter. 
And uh, just for the folks at home, we wanted to get a few highlights from your session. So my first question for you, a question that you guys got from the audience during the session, for the general pediatric orthopedist who doesn't do skeletal dysplasia all the time, if I have a kid in my clinic and I think there may be a dysplasia going on, nothing's been diagnosed, how do you recommend that we go about that workup, what imaging, what referrals, etc.? That's hard. You're not used to doing it. So uh, the first thing, every interaction with a patient should be after a very, very good history and physical exam. And uh, the first thing you want to do if you're thinking about skeletal dysplasia is find out if they're short. Uh, pull out your CDC charts and, and plot them. And if they're, uh, you know, uh, three percentiles below normal, you know you have someone with a form of dysplasia. We don't know exactly what type. It could also be something like deficient growth hormone, but that is a very different pattern. So um, if someone is short, uh, the one problem that we know that exists in most kids with skeletal dysplasia that is life-threatening is upper cervical instability or stenosis. So get an x-ray of the upper cervical spine, do a FlexX x-ray, can be done at any age. Get an x-ray of the spine, get an x-ray of at least the lower extremities and maybe one hand. Um, we, at our institution, we do FlexX cervical spine, AP and lateral standing spine, a standing AP hip to ankle x-ray, and one upper extremity. And usually you can see immediately if there's some form of dysplasia. And you might be, you might be noticing, uh, if it was achondroplasia, you might be noticing that it's a, uh, it's a relatively normal length spine with normal looking vertebra, but with short lower extremities and short in the rhizomelic portion, which is the most proximal portion. And you can almost make the diagnosis right there. And then you're looking for, does, is there interpedicular narrowing between the thoracic and lumbar spine? Is there a so-called champagne goblet pelvis? Um, uh, there are many other things we can look for, but most people don't have the experience to go to that level. So what do you do when you're stuck there? So usually the people with the most experience and the most knowledge are the geneticists and there's some very, very good radiologists. And they can help you work through that. And um, uh, the next thing is getting into the really specifics of diagnosis and that usually involves in 2022 genetic testing. I personally think that should be done by experts who can counsel the patient, but um, uh, there are some gene panels that are available publicly for free that as an orthopedist you can order. The problem is uh, they come with a little counseling, but sometimes not enough to really understand the definite diagnosis. Let me, let me ask, there was some discussion about spine MRIs in the session. So which conditions do you see where you're going to recommend that a spine MRI is obtained as a screening test? And what exactly would you all be looking for with that test? Well, um, Craig, so um, I, I think we're going to apply this to, to um, uh, achondroplasia. Okay, sounds good. So in achondroplasia... The biggest threat early in life is foramen magnum stenosis. So for the average person, the only way to diagnose that is with an MRI or a CT. We don't do CTs as much anymore. Um, most of the international consensus in this area is to do an MRI, an unsedated MRI, feed the child, put them in the scanner for some quick cuts. Um, they're very rough, but it tells you immediately if there's a problem. In the older child who has developmental delay, weakness, upper motor neuron signs, concern about foraminal stenosis, then go straight to an MRI. It'll probably be a sedated MRI in that circumstance. Sure. 
Or if the child is a child with achondroplasia functioning well, normal neurological exam, no concerns about delay, developmental delay, then probably a sleep study, check for central apnea, and be very aware that sometimes the number of central apneas is not always associated with uh, frame and magnum stenosis. So what's that age where you stop getting the MRI? Let's, you know, if a six-month comes in, you're probably going to get that non-sedated MRI to rule out stenosis. What if they are five years old and meeting milestones? Is that old enough to, to skip the MRI? If they're five years old and they are, um, they are functioning well and they have a normal neurological exam, they essentially do not have frame and magnum stenosis. So what if they're two years old? And they're making um, milestones. In, in my group, we go to good physical exam, okay. we talk to neurosurgery, and we um, uh, will probably do sleep studies and watch them closely. So it's really just those re- the infants, the real small yes. kids, you're getting the uh, non-sedated MRI. Okay, great. And the second question that came out of the, uh, the session that I thought was really interesting, another hard one to answer because it's very broad, um, but what do you recommend to uh, kids with dysplasias for sports participation um, and activity restrictions? Well, we're talking about 400 different yes, types indeed. of dwarfs. So let's, let's, let's start with an easy one. Great. So you have someone with mild upper cervical instability, but a normal exam, uh, or someone who has st- significant stenosis with some symptoms, I would restrict them from any contact activity or trampoline or anything like that. Okay. If they're achondroplasia and they're healthy, um, uh, normal physical exam, uh, I let them do a lot. I don't like trampolines just because I don't even like average-sized kids on trampolines. Right. Fair enough. But, but uh, um, you know, they can be involved in, they can be... Um, uh, wrestling, swimming, cycling. There's so many things. It's a little hard for them to do the running sports and soccer. Soccer is really easy at the sort of the YMCA six to eight year level, but as they get older, it's hard to keep up. So are there kids who have not enough cervical instability to need a fusion, but enough cervical instability that they're going to have a lifelong restriction from sports in your practice. Boy, that's that's um, Carter's that's splitting in, hairs. Yeah, over yeah no. So Carter, <laughs> Toast Carter <laughs> actually uh, hit it um, in that um, the the issue there is what is the problem. So if there is a sack of 25 and 7 millimeters of instability with a cord that's only 1.2 centimeters, I'm not going to worry about that. Uh, If uh, there is um, uh, 7 or 8 millimeters of instability with a slightly narrow sack, I'm going to do a FlexX MRI and watch that child and probably not let them do any sports if there's no cord compression. If there's cord compression, you have to think about stabilizing it. Yeah. There's been some fantastic information. I've learned a lot from this. I hope our listeners at home are are writing down these notes and can listen to this over and over. But uh, I actually feel much more confident about my ability to uh, initially manage these patients in clinic just from this brief discussion. And now I feel more comfortable emailing you about my patients. <laughs> yeah. So thank That's you for that. Support. Thanks, Carter. Thanks, Craig. We'll, we'll share his uh, email in the show notes for anyone else who'd like to contact. <laughs> back. This is Craig Lauer. I'm joined by Carter Clement, and our guest is Michelle Wellborn, who just is fresh from her talk on SMA. Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. Um, the folks at home would love to hear an update about what's new in SMA, because this is one of the areas in peds orthopedics I think is rapidly changing, and uh, an update every every year, if not every month, would be great for all of us. Right. It's absolutely true. It is changing so dramatically. So I think most people are familiar with um, Spinraza, which was FDA approved in 2016, and we've had two more drugs that have been approved since then. Um, RISD, uh, and so both of those function in a similar way of increasing 
SMN2, which is basically like the backup to SMN1. And so what SMN does is it basically supports your motor neurons and it helps keep them healthy. So when you don't have SMN, then your motor neurons kind of atrophy and die. So uh, RISD and Spinraza increase that functionality. And more recently with Zolgentima, it's this is a virus that actually uh, delivers a live co- virus with a copy of SMN1, and that upregulates it on a genetic level. Can I ask you about um, the delivery mechanism of these drugs? Now, I know Spinraza has been intrathecal delivery. Yeah. Um, are, are, is everything else currently intrathecal, or are there newer options? Yeah, so only Spinraza is intrathecal. RISD is oral, uh, which is a huge change in terms of quality of life. And then also for those patients that, say, already had fusions or maybe don't necessarily want to do intrathecal injections. And then we also have one that's a one-time injection with Zolgentima. Okay. Are these compatible? Should patients do Zolgentima and then also continue with Spinraza or RISD, or should it be? Yeah. So I think we don't know all of the above. I don't. For at this point, I don't know of people taking both um, Spinraza and RISD. But you know, there are clinical trials going on all over the place, and I think that while uh, Zolgentima does help, um, that it alone may not be totally efficacious. Okay. So let's talk orthopedic implications. I think. You know, certain problems that are symptomatic, we yeah. kind of have to deal with. Right. But I, this probably changes our outlook on some of the preventative procedures we would do, since what you see in an SMA patient today may not be where they're at tomorrow. Yeah. How, how's it changing the outlook on how we think about uh, hip containment or or spine surgery? Yeah. So uh, way to hit on the controversial topic right there. So hip containment is exactly what's changing. So historically, these kids, um, so because of the muscle weakness, they would develop contractures and the hips would dislocate. And most kids actually have hip, knee, and ankle contractures. And so in the past, um, the kids that were more severely affected often passed away. But now that these kids are living, we're actually finding out that a huge percentage of them are having painful hips. And so while in the past we didn't do anything about those hips, now that these kids are living and they're living with pain, people are starting to advocate more and more for surgical intervention. There's no consensus yet, and different centers are doing it differently. Sure. Um, spine is less controversial um, because, you know, the scoliosis and the rib parasoling that was commonly associated with scoliosis was something that did impact their mortality, right? And so we've long been doing uh, bracing early on with large belly cutouts so it doesn't interfere with diaphragmatic breathing or G-tubes and then growing constructs because most of these kids did need some sort of surgical intervention relatively early on. For those kids, you if you were doing a fusion, you'd leave a window with laminectomies so that way they could get the intrathecal injections. Um, and then sometimes people were doing um, those outriggers to prop up uh, the ribs. But again, that's controversial because sometimes you actually stiffen the chest and then that makes it worse. And then other times you are propping it up, which then uh, obviates the parasol effect for breathing, but it, it facilitates the diaphragm. So, yeah. you know, and even then, I'm not sure that we totally know the whole mechanism. So some of this is just more speculative. Okay. So let me let me give you a, a case, which may be because it's something I've been thinking about specifically. Awesome. Let's say you have a kid with SMA, had uh, had growing rods, has magic rods mm-hmm. in, they're no longer lengthening, it's yeah. time for definitive fusion. Responding well to Spinraza has been on it for a few years. Mm-hmm. With definitive fusion, you could leave a laminectomy for future Spinraza injections. Yeah. You could put in an intrathecal catheter with a little port under the skin for sort of easier injections, albeit yeah. with some risk like infection. Yeah. Um, or you could switch to a RISD for a daily oral treatment. In this case, the family really likes getting the intrathecal injections every few months so they don't have to remember to take a medicine every single day. So yeah. to my surprise, I thought all these kids, we would just switch them to a RISD when it's time for the, uh, for the definitive fusion. So um, in that situation, would you push them harder to switch to a RISD, leave a laminectomy, put in a catheter? You know, I think that, again, this is so rapidly evolving. I don't know what drugs are coming down the road. I don't know what the next 5, 10, 15 years are going to hold. So I think I would not 
close any treatment options. Um, in general, when I think about what are the problems our patients face um, in terms of hardware complications, right? Your high tone kids, your CP kids, your kids that are insensate face more complications with their instrumentation, right? They're the ones who are going to get pseudos, they're going to break stuff. Um, but with our SMA patients, that's not necessarily the first thing that comes to my mind, right? Um, and so I, I would rather not uh, close the door, you know, so I would do a skip construct, kind of like Macfoot Tally has been advocating, um, and do laminectomies. Uh, I think the bigger question is, would I do a definitive fusion or not? Would I just leave those magic rods in? Um, if it's magic rods, I'd swap them because I've had, you know, you can have a pin failure down the road and then they can um, piston. Um, but if you have a growing rod in, I would probably just leave the growing rod and not necessarily transition to a definitive fusion. Pelvic obliquity is an issue in this hypothetical case we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so in this hypothetical case oh, wow. that we're talking about, um, I would say that in which case, yeah, yeah um, I would do that. And you could do a kickstand or something mm -hmm. like that to kind of, uh, again, level that pelvic obliquity, yeah. um, and that might help you out there. How do you uh, like to mark your laminectomies to help with the uh, injections? Yeah, so there's lots of different ways you can do it. Some people will do like a little piece of a K-wire or things like that. I, I think you, you've got lots and lots of options, but using something that they can see uh, with fluoroscopy for to guide that injection would be really beneficial to the radiologist. Okay. Uh, I think that's going to cover it for us. That was some great updates. Dr. Walborn, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, pleasure Sounds talking good. to you. Bye. See you around the rest of the week. Vice versa. All right, guys, this is Craig Lauer, uh, again, live at uh, IPOS 2022. Uh, we're going to take a break from our original uh, content from the meeting and actually talk with uh, two hosts and close friends of mine here, Carter Clement and Phil Nowicki, uh, both putting on their hats to represent POSNA and specifically the Ortho Kids Committee within POSNA. Um, so, hey guys, how you doing? Howdy, howdy. How's it going? Um, so, thank you guys for doing this. I, I kind of wanted to kick it off by just uh, maybe we could re remind the listeners of what Ortho Kids is and why this is a resource that, uh, that they should kind of keep in mind uh, as a POSNA member that they have access to. Sure. Yeah. This is uh, this is Phil um, Nowicki. The uh, Ortho Kids is the Posna um, website for parents. It is the uh, ultimate information site for all your questions and needs for pediatric orthopedics. It's Posna member generated. It's Posna member certified. So you know that the information is accurate and will give your uh, your parents and your patients the uh, the best information that they can need. And they can do it uh, digitally. We have tools on the website to uh, print out for your patients so they can go right to the, to the website itself and they can do it right there in clinic if you like to. We have papers uh, that you can print out and you can draw for them and your, uh, and your details and your plans. Um, it's uh, available for everyone to use. Yeah, and if you're a junior member of POSNA, you've probably contributed to this because I think most of us get pulled in to write at least one article or video and things like that. It's more than just articles, though. It's the videos, um, which I think is where a lot of a lot of parents and kids are more likely to watch that than to probably read. So, Phil, we really appreciate your efforts the last few years of kind of modernizing that database and information and getting it all uh, accurate and interactive. Um, Carter, let me flip over to you. What, what's kind of new on how we're interfacing with ortho kids and making that more available to our patients. Yeah, really exciting stuff. I've been working closely with Phil for the last couple of years, and uh, we have gone from trying to not only have the best content on the internet for pediatric orthopedics, but to having the most user-friendly and the most easy to deliver to your patients, their parents, and the pediatricians. Um, so we've added a lot of videos, a lot of pictures, and what uh, I'm really excited about is some ways we've been thinking up to try to bring it into your clinics. For example, for those of you who attended the meeting, hopefully you saw we've got all these posters laid out here at the meeting. The posters, for example, will have about 20 pediatric conditions on them, each one with a QR code, and these are meant for us to put up in our clinic rooms. I use them in my clinic room or to take to our local pediatricians, and basically you can direct parents to it. For example, you can say, your child has Osgood Slaughter's. Why don't you use your phone to scan this Osgood Slaughter's QR code, and it'll take them straight to an educational video on orthokids.org. We've got these available to print out online or also to order. 
And uh, if you're interested, you can go to clinicreative.net to, to print them out for free or to order them on the cheap. And they're also available to order with your hospital's logo on them for slightly more. Um, so please check out clinicreative.net to uh, help bring ortho kids into your clinics and to your patients. Yeah, we'll obviously post the link of the show notes and um, make sure that's easily uh, findable for our listeners. But, uh, guys, that sounds fantastic. The posters look great. Uh, anything you want to add? One more thing, too, is that uh, another big thing that we did these last couple of years, uh, or the kids, is now fully available in Spanish. So oh, use it. Yeah. Utilize yep. it. Great stuff, guys. I think it's, uh, it's a heavy load that you have lifted, um, but going to be very useful to have. Um, some reliable information on the internet to point our patients to. So thank, thank you again. All right, we are back on the air. This is Carter Clement again, and I am joined by Dr. Tom McPartland, who is up at Rutgers, has a pretty general pediatric orthopedic practice with a bit of a focus on hip, if anything. Uh, but his real specialty, uh, I think he'll tell you, hopefully I'm not putting words in your mouth, is uh, education, adult education, adult orthopedic education. And um, he's going to be part of the mid-career session tomorrow, uh, which I know a lot of people are excited about, specifically talking about education. And um, with that, I'll hand it over, Dr. McPartland. Carter, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me today. You know, Carter and I had the chance to meet at the uh, AOS Orthopedic Educators course just about a month ago in Chicago. And uh, we talked about a lot of different topics at that course. But what Posner really wanted to focus on, this mid-career symposium, is designed to bring people back to Posner who maybe haven't been in a little while and to really give them content that focuses them on things, challenges they face currently in their career. And uh, Craig Everson from Brown and I and Sandra Jarvis-Salinger, PhD from British Columbia, are going to be giving a seminar uh, tomorrow morning that will focus heavily on uh, where we are as teachers. You know, our identity as teacher forms without us thinking about it very much because from day one, we are teaching and we're probably doing a pretty decent job of it, but none of us, or very few of us, have been trained as educators. And so sometimes it helps just to have an opportunity to stop and think about what we're doing and zoom back and try to break it down as if you were someone going for your master's in education. My wife is an elementary school teacher, and one day I was talking about educational concepts on the phone with Craig, and she's like, oh, you're talking about objective-based learning. And I said, yeah. She's like, that was what my whole master's was about. <laughs> and I said, you know a lot more about this than I do. But, but it's been really a fun journey, Carter, to learn about um, you know, how you can really look at a learning encounter and how you can look at a rotation or even a whole residency and what it means to actually build curriculum and to, to give feedback, you know, something that our, our residents are really craving and we really need for ourselves to help us grow. So tomorrow morning, we're going to focus on the identity of someone as a mid-career surgeon and then talk about some strategies and skills that we might go back and employ to make us a little bit more effective at that. And it really starts with being intentional about what we do, being thoughtful about the opportunity we have in any learning, uh, learning situation, be it an OR case or an uh, opportunity in clinic or didactic session, to really think about what do we intend to teach, what is important for us to teach to our residents. And then once you've done that, you have to say, well, how am I going to do it? And then you have to go back and critically evaluate if you did what you thought you were going to do. So those are kind of the things we're going to focus on. That's great. So, you know, I know you educate a lot of educators and give a lot of uh, advice on this topic. If, is it possible to boil it down into one or two things that you think are sort of the high points, your favorite things to tell people that you think are sort of aha moments for educators? Well, I think that being aware that teaching is an act, it's something that is part of our mission, something we have always done, but we really just have to slow down and think about it, and we don't have the time to do it all the time, but if we spend a couple of minutes, I think the scrub sink is a really important place to do that before a surgery case, and we can think about, well, what do I have a chance to teach this resident right now? And the key is to figure out what they don't know and what they do know. So you have to actually stop and ask them a few questions. You know, have you done this before? We've done it together before. What skills do you think were hard for you to work on here? And then you can actually be really specific in coaching them, which is a type of teaching, through those elements. And I think if you look at this at a very kind of base level, okay, you have to figure out where your opportunities to teach are. Or 
you have to create opportunities to teach things you think are important, okay? So being intentional and going into a situation saying, I want to teach you, uh, you know, what do we need to teach you to help you get better at this is one part. The other part is really realizing that I have a ton of things I need to teach you. I can't possibly teach you everything that I need to teach you, but I'm not your only teacher. So this is a team sport, and you need to work with your colleagues to make sure you cover material, okay? But if you realize consistently that I really want to teach something, but I haven't taught it consistently, how do I integrate that? And sometimes that's making up a little case file that you keep on your Google Drive, that between cases you have five minutes, you can pull it up and look at it and do it, okay? So I really think it boils down to two things. I, I think it means being intentional and thinking about what do I want to teach, and then looking after the fact and saying, did I actually teach it? I think it's that simple. That's great. Sort of right along those lines, one thing that I learned thanks to you uh, and the other great faculty at the AAOS Educators course was to really um, focus on the trainees' objectives, too. And since the course, uh, several times I've asked the resident or fellow before a case, what are your learning goals for today? And I've been shocked how well that worked. They've told me this is the part of the case I think I need to work on. Um, one, it made it easier for me to do the other parts of the case and keep us moving quickly. And two, I think they were much more satisfied at the end because I let them do that part of the case and talk them through it rather than just assuming that they you know, cared equally about doing all parts of the case. So I find that really interesting. And this is going to flip. I'm going to interview you, right? <laughs> oh so how much easier did feedback go after you did that with them? Incredibly easy to give feedback because right. we were on the exact same page. Yep. And so aligning the teacher with the learner is so important, okay? And that's how you give the most effective feedback. How often do you think we ask our learners, what do you want to learn here, okay? Instead of assuming this is what you need to know. Yep. And there's a, there, that's important. I'm not trying to sweep that aside. But making sure that they know that you're focused on them and that you want to make them better at this particular thing. They don't have to walk into the case saying, if I don't do this skin to skin, I failed, exactly. okay? Because when you were a resident I was a resident, that's how we felt, right? If the knife got taken away, that was we felt bad. The okay? dreaded moment, absolutely. The, the dreaded moment, okay? But if you tell them, I want to, I want you to come away from this learning these particular things, and we're going to slow down at that part of the case. We still have to do this case in three hours, but we're going to have 10 minutes, we're going to slow down, and I'm going to focus on making sure you are comfortable with finding your starting point for this pedicle screw. Well, that was a really valuable learning moment, and you're not overwhelming them trying to teach them the whole time, or playing what, do, you know, what am I thinking, or what do I think you should know. You're actually agreeing on the thing that you're going to focus on. And then the feedback part, so tell, tell me what it was like, Carter, to give feedback. It was, it was easy. <clears throat> but it was easy. It was almost unnecessary because we had talked through the case, uh, through the part that I knew mattered most, and um, it was almost like the feedback at the end of the case was just sort of emphasizing the conversation we'd already had during the crucial part. So you're asking yourself the part to accomplish our objective, okay? So you stated an objective of learning this skill. Did we do it? Yeah, we did. And you actually witnessed them getting better at it, and they come away more confident. So I do think there's a lot of value to looking at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is great. Looking forward to the uh, session tomorrow, and I'll uh, make a, a plug for the AAOS Educators course. Anyone out there um, who spends a lot of time with residents and fellows and you know just wants to take a few days to really be able to focus on that and enhance those skills and uh, find new ways to think about things, it's a really great experience. Thanks, Carter, for having me. Thank you. Hello again, everyone. We're back in the podcast booth. This is Carter Clement. I'm joined by two co-hosts this time, Nick Fletcher and Craig Lauer, and we've got two esteemed guests with us, uh, Dr. Hamish Crawford, the new president of the New Zealand Orthopedic Association, and Dr. Deborah Eastwood, the new president of the British Orthopedic Association. We're very excited to see pediatric orthopedists in these leadership positions across the world, and we are honored to have you here with us. And uh, to start things off, we just wanted to hear how it's been going. What have you learned in the uh, beginning of your tenures? I'll let him go first. <laughs> Gentlemen well, uh, first. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Carter, for that introduction, and it's a real pleasure to be here with uh, Debbie. We've, we've been uh, great friends and colleagues for a long period of time. It's, it's actually 3.30 in the afternoon, so, you know, being English in New Zealand, we really should be having a cup of tea. This is, <laughs> this is what we'd call afternoon tea time, so uh, we should be sitting here with a cup of tea, but... Uh, Look, it's a real honour to serve your, your country. So, um, uh, in a role as as a president of a of a of a national organisation, and um, I think when you start on a, a journey like that, you you think, is there something I want to achieve in your year of doing that? But 
In fact, you know, the way leadership goes these days is we're, we're on the presidential line for two years before we become the president. So in fact, uh, you learn a lot and if you want to start doing things, you need to start it early on rather than just saying this year I'm going to do this or that. Mm. Our organisation's in very good shape. Uh, we've had very good leaders. Um, for me, uh, probably addressing our long waiting list uh, post-COVID um, is important. And, you know, if you really look at the role of, of what we're doing as an organisation, as a national organisation, we prioritise the, the the selection and training of our residents as the single most important thing that we do. Uh, they're having troubles at the moment with, with access to elective surgery. So uh, it's how we can train people better on less numbers of patients, which is really important. And then carry on what we do as an organization, which is really advocating for our orthopedic patients in the country, as well as our members. We have a 100% membership of our association by uh, surgeons, which is I think unique in the world. Um, so uh, importantly, we advocate uh, for our patients and for our members. Yeah. And Dr. Eastwood, what, what about you? So I, I, it has to be the recovery of our elective uh, practice, but we've had two years where we've thought nothing else but that and the COVID recovery. And I think we do have to now sort of look at other um, aspects of, of our profession. So I think uh, flexibility in training and in the job planning. Um, you know, not everyone wants to work full time for the NHS at the moment. You know, our, we have much better resident numbers being female. So 30% of our, our this year's intake were women. So they don't want to, sorry, all trainees don't necessarily want to work full-time that hard all the time and so we've got to just be much cl more clever with our training and have a lot more flexibility in the hours you work and and where we put partnerships you know there's no point having them two hours apart and expecting them to commute and be happy and be productive and enjoy the job so flexibility in training and in your work-life balance and then sustainability has to be a, a big thing the amount of stuff that we throw away in theatres at the moment after every case that can't that just can't go on really so that's a little thing that everyone's involved in now but we've got to start making a concerted effort from the British Orthopaedic Association I think for that. So I'm curious um, Hamish I looked up uh, New Zealand's population and it is just under that of Atlanta yeah. <laughs> and we struggle in Atlanta to get you know we've got a, a gazillion orthopedists mostly adult but obviously a, a reasonably large pediatric group we have a hard time getting the people in one city to ever come into the same room and you have six million people but probably a you know a, a relatively large geographic distribution of your orthopedists across the country how do you keep that together and how do you make sure that you get together on a regular basis and that you have that sort of you know, national orthopedic pride, if you will, that'll allow you to, to um, advance things within New Zealand's uh, orthopedic world? Yeah, well, that's that's a really good question, Nick, and uh, a lot of people ask us that because of 100% of our members being in that. Part of that is um, we advocate as an association um, surgical fees with our, with our government. Uh, it's called the accident compensation or no faults claim type uh, thing, which is unique to our country. So you do need to be a member of our association to have access to that. So I think that uh, really yeah. encourages that people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Can I you know, be a you, uh, Yeah, we'd like to be members yeah. too. So that's really important. Um, secondly, we are a very proud association and um, the history of it is such that uh, part of that being proud of our association has actually been involved in the just presidencies of the, of the English-speaking world. So you'll be aware that you're... AOA president, your AAOS president, uh, Debbie president of the, the BOA, the South African president, Australian president and myself, we get together at every meeting and the Canadians, sorry, at every uh, every English speaking meeting during the year. So, um, you know, part of that is, is part of New Zealand being part of the international world, which is amazing for a country our side to be, size to be involved in that. Um, so I think we work we work really hard to keep our reputation as high as we can so that we can maintain that relationship and, and be good. But um, so, so we get together once a year. Um, our annual meeting would attract maybe 150, 200 uh, registrations from surgeons. So that's pretty high uh, for that as well. We have a national training program. So 
Our residents are involved throughout the country, so that's important in keeping us all together. And the majority of us work both in the public system, like uh, Debbie was saying, the NHS, but we also work in private practice. So um, there's a lot of togetherness and, and working together, yeah. So I want to take the same question for Debbie. So the other problem that we have in Georgia is that Atlanta is central with six million people. There are two other two million other people in the state of Georgia, and it's hard to represent them at times, right? The needs of the orthopedists who represent our major metropolitan city are very different than that in rural Georgia. And I'm curious how you balance that in the BOA, because I, I assume, I mean, your country is a lot bigger than Georgia, but, but I, the distribution is probably not that different. Yeah, and you're right. I, that's another thing that we need to do if my buzzwords are engagement with the membership uh, and sustainable systems so we have to involve the people in the in the more the rural I mean, you know the smaller cities and the smaller hospitals because the troubles they're having and the difficulties they're facing are not the same as I'm facing in my ivory tower in London at the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. I mean, they're not. So if you don't listen to what the problems are, then you're not going to represent all your surgeons. And the UK also, our big battle at the moment is that people don't see the need to be part of the BOA because they're part of the Children's Orthopaedic Society or the Hip Society, the Knee Society. So we're splitting up a little bit. So we're trying to say, yeah, but we're all one body you know you can be the hips and the elbows but we're part of one body and that has to be the boa if we're going to stick together and make change happen but we have to represent everyone nick you're right and it's tricky so that's interesting deb because we have the same problem or we're concerned about people breaking into their subspecialty groups rather than uh, coming to our annual meetings so in fact this year of 2023 for the first time we're having three subspecialty meetings on the weekend saturday and sunday and then our ASM has been shortened from three days to two days and will be on the Monday, Tuesday to try and engage more people in that. So that's, that's something we're trying to do. With regards to the rural uh, 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 surgeons, which you're talking about, like in Georgia, I mean, the big problem for us is subspecialization and that what we actually need is the return to the generalist, the high-level functioning generalist who will work in these smaller places and, and do a good service to the community there. But increasingly, um, surgeons want to be doing one joint and one joint really well. So they, they feel like if they're working in a smaller town, they're not doing as good a job as, and, and when do you refer, when do you have to get rid of that case that you really want to do, but feel slightly vulnerable doing. And secondly, um, you know, uh, just families in general now with education and, and community, they seem to want to work more in a, in a larger central uh, city. So yeah, the, the, the rural, issue is a really big thing for us in orthopaedics but also in primary care medicine as well. And we're being pushed, you know, you monitor your you audit your outcomes, the National Joint Registry, you know, is is a really big thing. But they're beginning to decree that if you only do this many joints per year, you know, should you be doing them? No one's done any for a year or two. So people are getting very nervous now that they're going to be stopped from doing the things that they enjoy doing and we're good at. You know, they, their outcomes are good, but they're just not doing quite enough of them. And does that make you bad? No, I don't think it does. It means you're providing a good local service and you're safe. And if you've got a network to ring when you need some advice, that, I think that's Is that big drive, isn't it? Volume equals high quality, but in fact, there's actually high quality surgeons doing lower Low volumes volume, yeah. really well. Yeah. So it's, it's a real uh, dilemma uh, in New Zealand and, mm. and right around the world, I think. This is obviously a meeting that I know you both love, Um, but we've seen you, meaning sort of American POSNA has seen you as as individuals in your organizations traveling. I mean, Hamish, that's a long way. That's a long way. And I mean, Deb, I've, I've, uh, it's it's long, not quite as far as Hamish. But but the the recurrent visits to the U.S. to collaborate, I, I just. Speak towards why you continue to find that so valuable. I know you have lots of friends here and it's fun to do that, but why, why keep coming over and, and taking a lot of time off and it's not a cheap trip and all that kind of stuff? Well, you know, first of all, a, a 14-hour flight to Houston is, is uh, the best 14 hours of my life because no one can get hold of me. <laughs> why on earth they ever bought Wi-Fi onto planes? I've got no idea, but you know, I might start coming by boat if they uh, <laughs> ever get cell phones to work up there. You know, I think Posner's an 
amazing organisation. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it is uh, a part, obviously, from our own meeting, one of the, just the greatest meetings I go to. I think the, the collegiality, the um, camaraderie, the diversity you have within POSNA is great. I think you guys are at the cutting edge of educationalists. And what I love about IPOS is, you know, the people who speak here are educationalists. And that's really important and engaging. So one is I learn a lot. Two, I'm happy to contribute uh, and try and share our experiences because I think different countries actually have different conditions and can contribute to helping uh, children all around the world. So I think we all need to respect each other's countries and communities and how you do that. And you know, the relationship of EPOS with POSN is amazing in terms of uh, the European and, and uh, American relationship as well. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that and, of course, you know, you guys have great people here, great collegiate. I mean, the, the friendship, my family outside over here is just second to none. And having uh, spent two and a, almost two and a half, three years stuck in New Zealand with COVID to come here is quite, <laughs> it's quite emotional seeing all my old friends again. And, uh, and then, um, you know, I was thinking, looking at you three guys, you know, guys are going to be the rock stars of the future you know I look at uh, great leaders like uh, Peter Newton, Jack Flynn, Peter Waters, Steve Frick, all my mates like that and, and you know to see this next group of people rising up to that and, and you guys are doing the same thing that they did it's kind of really cool so I, I think you're in good stead and I'll keep coming back as long as I'm asked. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about it, haven't we? Yeah. That I, yeah. I just think this is uh, this is the greatest educational meeting I take part in, and I think Posner's a, a great scientific meeting. I I maybe take the very great out of that just because it's different, you know. And trying to take what the science of Posner and apply it back home isn't, you know, isn't as easy. So it's really it's a really good fun, yeah. and it's been great fun getting to know Hamish over the years. I, I see Deb over here. We meet halfway <laughs> around the world. You know, we, <laughs> we catch up and have Christmas together before uh, a gin and tonic. You know, yeah, we, right. if, we have, if we have afternoon tea and morning tea, we then, yeah, then have, uh, have, have five o'clock gin, gin yeah. and tonic as well. So very English. <laughs> <laughs> well, Deb, I know you need to go I moderate. need to go and do educational that's stuff. Right. Yeah, that's I believe right. that's why I'm that's here. That's what here for. But right. this has been a joy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, you can come out of the box now. <laughs> Thanks, guys.